Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will cover the reign of the ninth Abbasid to rule the Ummah, Harun ibn Muhammad al-Mu'tasim. His father left him a highly centralized state with some ferocious armies. So in other words, more actual authority than most caliphs ever hoped to wield. The succession went smoothly because al-Mu'tasim's inner circle, the state's key administrators, held everything together and left no room for uncertainty. It was an auspicious start to what would turn out to be an unremarkable reign. Episode 63, Al-Wathiq As we've progressed through our history, the problems we find in our sources have changed, but also lessened. Gone is the lens of veneration used for the pre-dynastic era. Gone is the scorn which biased coverage of the fallen Umayyad dynasty. While the Abbasid age has its challenges, especially in regards to the vilification of those perceived to have harmed the Ummah, overall I would say there has been a marked improvement. Given that our sources are contemporaneous with events from here on out, this should come as no surprise. After all, it makes perfect sense that they would be more knowledgeable about developments which took place during their lifetimes. Al-Tabari, author of the main compendium of oral narrations we're using for this podcast, was born in the last few years of Al-Muqtasim's reign. We don't know when Al-Yaqubi was born, but he was the great-grandson of a freedman of Al-Mansur's, which means he must have grown up during Al-Ma'mun's reign. Al-Mas'udi, the youngest of our three sources, won't be born until the end of the century. Ironically, he's the one with the most to say about our latest caliph, but it is as amusing and unreliable as the rest of his material, so we can safely ignore it yet again. Given that our two authoritative sources were already alive and kicking, it is incredible how little we find on Al-Wathiq. Even Al-Hadi, who only ruled for a single year, has a higher word count. Al-Wathiq's five-year reign clocks in at just 7,500 words, while Al-Hadi's at over 11,000. The new caliph had such a limited vision for the state, it's not worth going through his time in charge chronologically. We'll take a thematic approach instead and describe the changes the Ummah underwent despite its uninspired leadership. We'll cover the handful of administrative decisions attributed to Al-Wathiq, focus on the intensification of the Mahna or Inquisition during his time, and finally, we'll discuss how bad things were in the Arabian Peninsula. But first, tradition. Our usual starting section will be quite short on account of how little we know about the Ummah's latest leader. Harun was the son of a Greek concubine named Qaratis, born in the year 812, during the Great Fitna. We hear nothing else about him for over 20 years, when he was appointed as the Caliph's representative in Baghdad after Al-Mu'tasim moved the capital to Samarra. 
While the position had no administrative authority, it did give him some experience in holding court, I guess. More importantly, though, it clearly established that Harun was the designated heir, a notion that was reinforced when his father made him stay behind in Baghdad while pretty much everyone else joined the campaign for Amorium. Harun was 30 years old when Al-Mu'tasim passed away in 842. He chose the title Al-Wathiq Billah, he who trusts in God, and settled into his father's role quite seamlessly. He left all of Al-Mu'tasim's loyalists in their various positions, even the powerful treasurer, Muhammad ibn Zayyat, whom he had threatened to imprison the day he took office. Ibn Zayyat had the abrasive personality of someone confident of his own authority, so it rubbed plenty of people the wrong way. He must have made himself thoroughly indispensable, though, because Al-Wathiq kept him around as a vizier and did nothing to abridge his power. When it comes to administration, the only angle the caliph seemed to pursue was prosecuting and dispossessing officials accused of embezzlement. These men were mostly secretaries to members of the inner circle, and the sums that were expropriated from them under torture show just how much wealth flowed to those in the upper echelons of the hyper-centralized caliphate. One secretary had over a million dinar in his possession, that's the gold one, while others had tens or hundreds of thousands. Some narrations make it sound like this was something Al-Wathiq took upon himself out of a sense of personal responsibility for upholding justice in the caliphate. Given how indifferent the caliph was in other aspects of administration, we have good reason to be skeptical of this alleged motive. I prefer accounts which stress the role his treasurer and vizier played in instigating the investigations. These tell a different story, one about how Ibn Zayyat was trying to stymie al-Mu'tasim's Turkish commanders, who were behaving with impunity now that their master was gone. It seems like some leaders were stashing away a significant portion of the state revenue they were responsible for, then preaching poverty when it was time to pay the soldiers. The expropriated money would often end up being used to pay those salaries. Although the secretaries caught by the caliph were punished, their bosses never met with any consequences, serious or otherwise. The only major administrative changes during Al-Wathiq's time happened to him rather than because of him. In the year 845, Abdullah ibn Tahir and Ashinas died within days of one another. The pair practically governed the entire caliphate between the two of them. Abdullah was responsible for Greater Khurasan, so pretty much everything east of Iraq, and Ashinas for everything west of Samarra. Abdullah's son, Tahir, replaced him, and Itach, now most senior among Al-Mu'tasim's old guard, took the place of Ashinas. Now that Itach was the new Ashinas, Wasif became the new Itach, making it clear that even when it came to promotions and appointments, the administration ran itself with almost no input from Al-Wathiq. The final member of the court worth discussing is Ahmad bin Abi Dawood. Discerning listeners will have noticed that I've referred to this Qadi al-Qudat by three different names, Du'ad, Da'ud, and now Dawood, which are all the spellings I've come across reading about him. But I'll stick to Ibn Abi Dawood from here on out. 
Our sources say that the chief justice held a stronger grip on al-Wathiq than he had had on his father, which is saying a lot. We find all sorts of evidence for Ibn Abi Dawood's influence on al-Mu'tasim, from intercessions on behalf of those who had angered the caliph, to exhortations for charity and even religious and personal advice. When it comes to al-Wathiq, the only proof of Ibn Abi Dawood's sway was the intensification of the Inquisition. The Mahna had started in the last year of al-Ma'mun's reign, but it sort of petered out after al-Mu'tasim chose to focus his attention elsewhere. His patronage of the Turks generated enough opposition as it was, and he didn't need the added headache that came with policing people's doctrinal choices. Having grown up during his father's ascendancy, Al-Wathiq had no appreciation of these nuances. Not only did he allow Ibn Abi Dawood to pursue his policies unabated, but he sometimes escalated things further than his chief justice would have liked. His interference comes out most clearly in a narration about his fourth year in charge. By then, some residents of Baghdad were fed up with the Mu'tazilite doctrine being forced upon them, and they began to rally behind an old scholar named Ahmad ibn Nasr al-Khuza'i. This preacher had first come to prominence during the chaos in the aftermath of the Great Fitna, when the people of the capital looked to such men to lead self-defense groups or militias. It seems like al-Khuza'i maintained his adversarial stance towards the state ever since, and thus became a lightning rod for opposition to Ibn Abi Dawood's policies. He was swiftly arrested and taken to the caliph's court, where al-Wathiq questioned him in person. When al-Khuza'i said he believed in the possibility of a corporeal god, the caliph insisted he be executed for heresy, despite Ibn Abi Dawood's repeated calls for clemency. Although this sort of resistance to the state's religious policy never went anywhere, it does lay bare how detested the imposition of Mu'tazilite ideology was to many. The doctrine was associated with a state that had grown increasingly foreign over the reigns of the last two caliphs. Before getting off the subject, it's worth mentioning one last extreme application of the Inquisition. A prisoner exchange with the Byzantines was agreed upon towards the end of Al-Wathiq's reign. Like the previous two instances, the transfer would happen man by man, with each group on one side of a river or cliff, allowing prisoners to cross a bridge one at a time. The court in Samarra tasked an agent with making sure that only Muslims who believed in the createdness of the Qur'an were accepted, so the prisoners had to answer doctrinal questions to qualify for release. It sounds absurd, but between this account and the ones about growing disquiet in Baghdad, it seems like these doctrinal schisms finally entered the mainstream during Al-Wathiq's reign, and were no longer restricted to judges and scholars. The last subject we have on the agenda today is the one we hear the most about during these five years, how bad things were on the Arabian Peninsula. The only remotely happy news we find about the region are accounts describing the pilgrimage trips of the Ummah's well-heeled. Al-Wathiq's mother and brother went to Hajj after he became caliph to celebrate his ascendance, and Ashinas went his first year as well. Ashinas's pilgrimage is downright celebrated in our sources. They say he took his time, 
stopped at every mosque he came across and handed out lots of money to anyone who had the good fortune of praying alongside him. Although both he and Al-Afshin were foreign to the Ummah just a few decades back, there is a stark difference between how they're discussed in our sources. Embracing Islam publicly earned Ashinas much praise and a sparkling reputation, whereas rejecting the religion left Al-Afshin in historical infamy. Anyway, back to our topic. Things were really bad in the desert. In 843, even nature turned against the peninsula, as it suffered some strange and extreme weather. The report we find in Al-Tabari says there was an intense and prolonged heatwave, followed by a cold rain that wouldn't stop, and that the sudden change in temperature caused great harm to people and their herds. The rain was so intense that mudslides in Mecca killed several pilgrims. There was no relief from the weather nor its consequences, as shortages of basic goods and unusable routes were simply ignored by the state. Prices skyrocketed, people starved, and no one did anything to fix it. It shouldn't surprise us that the security situation deteriorated in this forgotten corner of the caliphate the next year. A tribe called the Banu Sulaim began menacing the outskirts of Medina. They plundered its markets a couple times, but its governor didn't get the help he asked for until they fought with another tribe and ended up killing a large number of them. The caliph sent him 200 of the Maghariba to help ensure peace in Medina, but the Banu Sulaim had other plans. They entered the city in secret and sprang on them soon after they arrived. The bold maneuver proved effective. The Banu Sulaim eliminated the caliph's army and armed themselves with its kit and weapons making them a more dangerous threat than ever before. The caliph now sent a more serious force their way, led by one of Al-Mu'tasim's senior Turks, a Khazar named Bugha the Elder. There's going to be another Bugha before long, so we'll have to keep calling this one Big Bugha so we don't confuse them down the line. We don't have any good estimates of his army, but we can safely assume it was in the low five figures. I'd guess close to 10,000. He wasted no time meeting the Banu Sulaim in battle, and the first engagement helped them realize just how much trouble they were in. He offered clear and uncompromising terms. If they all surrendered, he would only arrest those who had crossed unforgivable lines. They accepted, and he had 1,000 of them arrested and put inside an old Umayyad palace in Medina. He tasked the people of Medina with watching over them while he went to deal with similar lawlessness in Mecca and other parts of the peninsula. The Banu Sulaim tried to break out after he was gone. They dug tunnels with their bare hands and ignored their wardens when they asked them to desist. The terrified people of Medina thus decided that the best thing they could do in Big Bugha's absence was to kill them all. In their panic, they also decided to kill any Bedouin in Medina they suspected of being part of the Banu Sulaim. When Big Bugha returned a few days later and saw all the dead, he was anguished and regretful at having left things the way he had. The general had no time to wallow, however, because duty called elsewhere on the peninsula. In the absence of the state, the region seems to have largely regressed to its pre-Islamic social dynamics. 
Tribes that could field more warriors than others used that advantage to dominate their locales. After the Banu Sulaim, there were the Banu Murra, Banu Fuzara, and in 847, the Banu Numair, each in a different part of the peninsula. Big Bugha took care of them all, and the last ones, the Banu Numair in Yamama, or eastern Saudi Arabia today, were surprised to meet an Arab captain leading Bugha's forces. They chided him for betraying his ethnic roots by allying with slaves and foreigners against his own people. A very tribal reaction indeed. By the time Big Bugha was done with everyone, he had over 2,000 prisoners, and he marched them to Samarra to face the caliph's justice. That's it. That's pretty much all we know about al-Wathiq. The few personal descriptions we find of him are either trifling or unreliable. Apparently, he loved to eat and drink. A few accounts say he was an intellectual, but I don't see it. I think they're just going off a nickname he had when he was young. He was referred to as Little Ma'amun because his uncle took the time to teach him grammar at some point. He developed edema and died suddenly in 847 at the age of 35. Although Al-Wathaq's condition deteriorated over the course of a couple months, there's a narration which says that his astrologers predicted he would recover and rule for another 50 years. Perhaps this is why he didn't bother to pick an heir, even while on his literal deathbed. Or maybe it was because he was under the impression that administrative decisions just made themselves without requiring anything from him. That would certainly be consistent with his track record. Whatever the reason, for the first time since the dawn of the dynastic caliphates, the Ummah's leader had failed to nominate a successor. Al-Tabari writes that following the caliph's death, the six most powerful members of the court met to jointly decide what to do next. These were the wazir ibn Zayyat, the chief justice ibn Abi Dawood, the senior Turkish leaders Itach and Wasif, and two secretaries whose names aren't important. Ibn Zayyat suggested pledging to al-Wathiq's son Muhammad. We're not told his age, only that he was too young to grow facial hair, and that the traditional robes of a caliph looked cartoonishly oversized when he put them on. Wasif was the first to object at his sight, saying that it was sacrilegious to pledge to a man who couldn't lead the ummah in prayer. The idea was thus rejected, and Muhammad was dismissed while the group argued over different names. They finally settled on Al-Wathiq's younger brother, Jafar, who was summoned into their presence by Little Bugha, and first pledged to by Ibn Abi Dawood, then the rest of those assembled. Later that night, the people of Baghdad got their chance to pledge, and the 25-year-old Jafar thus became the 10th Abbasid to hold the title of Caliph. I don't think we should progress our narrative any further today. This is a good point for us to instead take stock of Al-Muhtasim's legacy in light of how dominant the Turkish element he had introduced into the caliphate had become. Things worked well enough during his reign, so I'm hesitant to blame him for developments that unfolded during his son's time. But then again, he was the one who picked Al-Wathiq as his successor. It's not about determining precisely who to blame for what. The point is to grasp what will metastasize into a terminal problem for the state. 
the Turkish monopoly on official authority will become so absolute that it will disenchant much of the Ummah as it descended into ruinous infighting. While most commentaries blame Al-Mu'tasim for having been the first to empower them beyond any established precedent, I would argue that he did so successfully. What he failed at was making sure his heir could reliably control his retinue as well as he had. It was interesting to come across some fealty analysis while reading up on these events, material in some accounts which tries to explain what the Turks owed to whom. The main idea is that loyalty corrodes over time, as there are various defensible positions one could take on the subject. Everyone agrees that it was the duty of Al-Mu'tasim's slaves and freedmen to obey their master. Any other behavior would have been deemed shameful and worthy of punishment. They were supposed to also obey him because he was caliph, but the rejection of that duty wasn't exactly shameful. It was considered irreverent and ideological. Anyway, there was no conflict while Al-Mu'tasim was around. When he passed away, they all pledged to Al-Wathiq, something most of them considered a final act of fealty to Al-Mu'tasim. This is where things get murky. There's disagreement on whether these freedmen now owed any of this bondage loyalty to Al-Wathiq. If some of them felt their obligations toward Al-Mu'tasim had ended with his death, it would explain why embezzling only became a problem after his reign was over. Such a conclusion, however, suggests a dangerous future for the caliphate, as it implies that the ties which bound the leaders of the powerful armies to the Abbasids had begun to fray. I don't have much to say about Al-Wathiq's legacy, but his succession is certainly worth analyzing more closely. On the one hand, it's shocking that Al-Mu'tasim's inner circle got to pick his heir, but on the other, it's clear that they made the right choice. I'm not sure how many viable candidates there were for the position, but despite Wasif's objections, I'm quite certain that they could have gotten away with nominating a child caliph. While it's commendable that they picked someone more mature, it would be a stretch to say that they were acting in pursuit of the greater good. They probably hoped Jafar would be just as pliable as Al-Wathiq, or at least just as uninterested in administration. But... What they actually wanted, and who they picked, are both red herrings. The real issue here was that they were the ones who chose the next leader of the Ummah. It's a fact nobody could ignore from here on out, neither them nor the new caliph. These men had only come to power because they were useful to Al-Mu'tasim. They lived in their own city and had never tried to cultivate wider ties within the Ummah. If we wanted to be unkind... We could call two of them foreigners who had no business deciding matters for the Arabs, two their thieving secretaries, one a money-hungry wazir who expropriated people's wealth, and another a heretic judge hell-bent on shoving his beliefs down everyone else's throats. This isn't how I see them, of course, but it is how they were perceived by some. Their proximity to power alienated large parts of the Ummah, who could no longer identify with the state that ruled over them. So not only had the Praetorian Guard gotten a glimpse of their true power, but they were also deeply unpopular with basically the entire civilian population. 
these were only some of the significant problems that Jafar had to contend with now that he was in charge. To explore his reign together, join me again next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.